Welcome to the Smart Policy Podcast, a production of the University of Tennessee's Institute for Public Service. Every month, we'll give you in-depth interviews with a wide range of experts on substance use disorder and the overdose crisis so that we can all have a better understanding of how we got here, how the state of Tennessee is fighting back, and what we might expect to see in the future. Telehealth, broadband internet, criminal justice reform, harm reduction. There's been a lot going on lately to expand access to treatment for substance use disorder. But how well are these changes being implemented in rural areas where the need is the greatest? And what about prevention? I spoke with Trent Coffey, executive director of STAND, a coalition of Scott County businesses, organizations, and community leaders focused on the health and well-being of youth. STAND started off, um, the acronym is for Schools Together Allowing No Drugs. We started off as programmatic in uh, about 22 years ago in early 2000. We started off as a programmatic piece where we non-punitively drug tested high school students. STAND also sponsors drug takebacks. They work with local law enforcement on a number of projects and overall advocates for evidence-based drug and alcohol policies. Rural areas have a lot of unique challenges, and my biggest takeaway from this conversation is that in order to make changes that last, we're going to have to listen to the people who actually live there. Well, what we're seeing in our community, since we are a distressed, impoverished community, we're seeing generational addiction go throughout the realm and scope of families. Um, Overdose deaths are much more than what are being reported. You're in a rural community, everybody knows everybody. And out of favors or out of respect for families, you're put in respiratory distress category, somebody had a heart attack. No, somebody OD'd. And we need to call it what it is. I have brought this issue up with CDC and ARC before, but they have to go with the powers that be in the person that's in place, okay? So when it says Scott County has fewer than four opioid overdose deaths in a year, that is crazy. That is not an accurate depiction of what's going on, okay? It's underreported, it's a big problem, and it needs to be reported correctly so we can address it. And a lot of that has got to be stigma then. Yeah, it's a lot of stigma. It's a lot of protection of families. I mean, we just, a lot of people know everybody here. And out of respect for families, sometimes it's not putting down right. I'm not saying it's intentional and it may be a habit or an innate reflex or something that somebody's doing. I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but we just really need to accurately depict what's happening, okay? It's got to be a change in culture in our area, in rural areas. And I've talked to other rural communities and stuff like that that face the same thing. And that hurts us on grants, that hurts us on everything, that hurts us on outreach, that hurts us on Narcan distribution, that hurts us on several, several different things. Because I said, oh, you don't have a problem. Um, being distressed, uh, we used to be a prosperous community back when coal and timber were big back in the 60s and 70s. Well, I always say, and this is a grant application saying, we built our community on the brawn of our back and the sweat of our brow because we were used to doing you know, the hard labor stuff. Well, since those things have dried up, we have a little bit of manufacturing in, but it's low, usually low pay, um, high stress, hard on the body jobs again, but it's just sedentary. So a lot of people are self-medicating to take care of that pain, and then it just become a generational concept. Um, we have kids that go to school that haven't seen their parents work the whole time from kindergarten through 12th grade. So with us being a distressed, distressed community, it's hard for us to gain 
an able and adequate workforce to recruit high-tech companies to come into our community. So we're trying to change that dynamic. We know we have to get to the root cause of these things. We have to pay, we have to be careful in a rural community how we address that. When somebody works at a factory making barely over minimum wage and raises a family of four, and they're the single provider, they deserve respect. They deserve honor, okay? Um, one of the reasons we're so big on the youth our, in our youth initiative is because I've beat my head against the wall for a long time with adults, okay? They're hard to change. It can be done, but it's long-lasting. Well, why don't we prevent it from happening before it becomes a problem? Why are we always behind it? Why don't we get in front of it and change that dynamic? For this community to prosper, we've got to change that dynamic in the youth and let them produce more youth that do that, produce more productive families, produce more people of means and needs to be able to come back to their community and change it. And we have a lot of domestic violence. We had a lot of child, child abuse, different things like that. That comes with addiction, okay? It's all interrelated and wrapped around. But we still, to fix that, we can't just treat one portion of it. We've got to treat all of it. And we have to treat the family. We can't just treat the individual. What we're trying to do is, as we get those individuals, is to try to reach out into the family unit and try to get, for lack of a better term, and this is not always the case, get the whole family healed, healthy, and sober. I like that a lot. And it, so it sounds like a not insignificant portion of this, if not the main portion of this, is economic stability, economic prospects, uh, work-life balance, things like that. Uh, what do you think the impact of economics are having? The impact of economics on our workforce is tremendous. Ten years ago, we had the highest unemployment rate in the state of Tennessee. It was upwards of 23%. Okay, we um, could not find jobs. As the economy changed, we started filling those jobs. Okay, now, because of um, whether it be addiction, economy, whatever, we have people, factories and other organizations begging for people to work. Our unemployment rate is still about 5% or something like that. But the people, the able people that are our Work, that can work are working, but we still have factories every day, um, organizations, Walmart, the banks, different places like that that need more help. We can't even find enough substitutes to um, fill our classes in the local school systems. I tried to call my principal the other day, and I finally got a hold of her, and I said, hey, what's, why am I the last on the list, and just jokingly, and she said, I had to teach math for the past three days. We can't find a sub. So that's just an example of what's going on. That's an example of why we have to have an a trained, able, and adequate workforce. What we have lost in that period is soft skills. Soft skills training that people can do their job. And as far as tech companies and stuff like that, we have to change the whole, darn, whole dynamic to be able to get those higher paying jobs in here. But we're not ready. We've got to train them up and bring them to that level where they can do those things. Like I said, we're mostly sewing, manufacturing, different stuff like that, high-intensive labor, hard work, sitting all day doing whatever, hurting your back, different things like that. But if we want those high-tech jobs, we've got to have that workforce trained to be able to do that. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to change that poverty mindset and that poverty dynamic that's in our community 
and um, raise up that workforce to where we can can be competitive with other cities and different things like that. What is the uh, impact, would you say, of, of um, jail-to-work programs? Uh, has that been impactful in this area? Jail-to-work programs came out of need for employees first. We had um, factories calling and, you know, just noticing. I mean, I am in touch with my political leaders and hearing from them and hearing from different factory members, which are partners in our, you know, our coalition um, that work with us on several different things. We do trainings for them, different things like that. Hearing from them that we can't find anybody to work. So out of this came the Correctional Career Pathways Program. I wish I could say I thought it up. I wish I could say it was my idea, but it wasn't. One of the things that we do do in this program is they can't mess up in the CCP program. And we have to do that as a, um, as a form of accountability. They can't use drugs. They can't go out in the parking lot. They can't have people drop stuff off to them. They can't meet family members. They can't. Get, we have to remember they are still serving a sentence for a crime that they committed. Okay, so they are under more um, protocols, more procedures, and more rules than anybody else, but they still get to go out into that workforce. We have to be careful. We're changing mindsets. We're changing total um, dynamics here. So we have to be stricter on them. And one of the ways we do that and, and that we are strict is if they get caught using on the job, if they bring something back into the jail, different stuff like that, then they are stripped of their trustee status. They're put back into the general population. So far, we have not had that happen. Okay. When we first started, first year, it was a little bit slow. Then it started growing. Pandemic hit, shut everything down. So now we're in a rebuilding process. We were in a rebuilding process. Things opened up about a year ago. Then boom, we've got a whole new mayor, whole new sheriff, whole new administration, everything going back in, okay? So um, we're building those partnerships, building those dynamics. Thankfully, because of our reputation and the successes that we have had out of, out of that, the new mayor, the new sheriff are very willing and very um, interested in keeping this program going. We've met with them. We're getting ready to start back up. And, you know, they've opened, met us with open arms saying, yeah, I think it's a good program. We want this to continue. So we didn't have to totally rebuild it, but we had to do it slowly to get it going. Well, that's, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And that's, that's one of the things we care about at IPS, that uh, a lot of people don't realize what goes into uh, governmental change at the county level. Oh, yeah. and it happens every few years. Uh, but speaking of these other changes and recent hurdles, um, you said something about how if their sentence is too short, they may not be good candidates for this just because the change tends to come from longer periods of time. Thinking about that, which is an interesting limitation, by the way, but thinking about that, uh, there have been two recent pieces of legislation, the Reentry Success Act and the Alternatives Incarceration Act. Uh, has that impacted your program at all? Um, since those are recently passed, that hasn't filtered down to us. Some of the things that, that those two bills or laws or whatever they are now are talking about is um, – you know, that early release portion and things, transitional housing, different things like that. We don't have that here, okay? Rural communities don't have those resources. We need those resources. We need to be able to do things like that. 
Um, you know, and even with the inmate, if they can get out of jail early and go to a transitional house, yes, they're going to have to pay a fee, a housing fee, to be able to um, take care of the accommodations. I mean, it has to come off the back of the litigant sometime. We can't just be free reign, okay? So teaching them about that structure, having those resources available, um, kind of lessening the jail population for our more serious offenders can go in there. That's very important. But if we don't have wraparound support services in place, active and of quality, it's futile. Okay. Bills can be passed. Things can be done. That's fine. It's wonderful. They in, Their intentions are good. But if the resources aren't there, then that bill is null. That law is null. It don't have anything to do. Major metropolitan centers, Knoxville, Nashville, Chattanooga, have resources to be able to do that. Rural communities do not have that, okay? We have transportation issues. Everybody has transportation issues. If I could just figure out some way to help with transportation, then I would never have to work again the day in my life. But no matter if I'm in a city, no matter if I'm in California, no matter where I'm at, everybody talks about transportation issues. And in a rural area, it's really, there's a lot of transportation issues. I mean, so, and getting them to those resources and those needed services is near to impossible. Opioid abatement money is coming, and it's not a lot, and it's coming from different places at different times, distributed to different municipalities and counties in different ways. Um, There's a lot of hope on the horizon for it, but you have a lot of experience with receiving funds like this. I was wondering if you could uh, talk about the realities of what this is going to look like. One of the things we have to do about the opioid abatement money is we have to educate our county commission on what those dollars are meant for. We can't go back and repeat history of the tobacco settlement where the tobacco settlement built roads and built infrastructure. That's not what this money's for. It has to go for youth prevention. It has to go to address the opioid use disorder that's rampant in our communities. But what we have to do is we have to have strict oversight of those dollars from the state and they have to make sure at the county level that they're spending those dollars on exactly what it was for. Each county in some way, shape, or form is addressing in some way the opioid use disorder epidemic. We need to look at those. We don't have to recreate them. We need to look at them and see what their past successes were and see what we can help them evaluate, what we can help them eliminate, and what we help can help them enhance. And fill in some of those gaps with these dollars on services that are needed. This is a one and done type money. There may be some more come down the pike, but it's like, you know, COVID pandemic dollars. You know, it's all great and good for a year, but then boom, it's gone. We have got to plan for the future. We have got to enhance or create those gaps and services that we need. And that's what this money is for, to address that. About roads and bridges and, and, and the money's going to that. I, I understand there's state and federal infrastructure uh, funding uh, that's been passed, as well as uh, spe- uh, quite a lot targeted specifically to broadband. Mm-hmm. Does Is this going to have an impact on, on this area? Uh, is uh, there going to be enough development there? Do you see telehealth as playing a realistic uh, part of this puzzle, et cetera? Telehealth. I um, recently got a grant for telehealth. Now, I'm not a big, I was not a big telehealth person. I was not, I mean, like, I got to have the people here. I've got to do that. Um, we got a grant and um, kind of used the telehealth port. 
it's hard for our communities to get involved in that because they just really want a hands-on approach. They don't feel like they're getting value-added service if they're just talking to somebody on a computer. But myself, I had to try it myself with, in full disclosure, I have a therapist. So I had to try it with my therapist one time during the pandemic. And after I done it and I um, got used to it, I was like, you know what, telehealth is not that bad. It's kind of easy. I mean, yes, I want the interpersonal connection. You know, yes, I want to be able to see somebody and talk to somebody and do things like that. But for something non-emergent or something like that, it's really a valuable tool. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, we got a partnership with the University of Tennessee College of Social Work to where we um, send um, those in kids that are needing services. And we, we get a um, licensed clinical social worker. You know, they're not licensed yet, but they're in school. And they're kind of an intern, and they're overseen by the College of Social Work. So they're doing that via telehealth. And our kids at first didn't like it, but after they started doing it, then they saw that value in it. And they really like it, and it's kind of just taken off. It's been very, very, very valuable. So my whole mind about telehealth changed. And if that's what we got to do to get the services that we need, then that's fine. But we have got to have that broadband service, which they've had several initiatives here that do. There's a problem in that too. Negative Nancy here again. Basic internet in Scott County is $98 a month. Okay? That's basic. How is a family that is living off of, you know, waking $300 a week, able to do that, and then have the equipment to be able to do that. It's impossible, okay? There needs to be an incentive for reduced or free broadband. There's no competitor here. Internet with no competition raises higher prices, okay? So those that need it, sometimes cannot afford it. Is it available? Yes. We will spend $10,000 to run a line to a house that's a mile down the road that's rotted and they can't even find a two before to hook up the um, router to, but we won't give them free internet. It's just, there's something wrong with the system. Again, have somebody at the table that knows their community to be able to um, address those issues. Appalachia is one of the best investment opportunities in the world. Okay, we have a lot of resources here. We have a lot of talent here that we can pull from. But what we have to do is tap into that talent and hone through education what people can do with that. I want this community to change, but I know it's gonna come from the new generation. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to heal or patch up the ones that are here now so that they can raise the children to be able to focus on education, focus on industry, focus on changing their community and become a healthier and happier place to live and raise their families. That's what we're trying to do as a prevention program, as a youth program, and even working with parents through the um, prison, prisoner inmate work release program, different things like that. That's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to change this community. For more episodes on in-depth discussions on Tennessee policies related to substance use disorder by a range of local experts, please subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts and visit our website at smart.tennessee.edu. I'm Jeremy Corvellis. 
Thank you for listening and see you next month.